Well, hello, everybody, and thanks for joining. Welcome to the Alta Scientist webinar and podcast channel where globally recognized business leaders and scientists discuss some of the most pressing drug development topics. Well, today marks the launch of Microsampling Moments, a series based on interviews with key opinion leaders and experts in the field of microsampling applications and product development. For this inaugural event, we're excited to welcome uh, our special guest, Dr. Don Chase, who's currently a senior application and product specialist uh, at Capitainer and a very well recognized pioneer in microsampling, being the primary developer for newborn uh, metabolic screening of amino acids and acylcarnitines from dry blood using LCMS MS technology. Pioneer in Dr. Chase has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and has presented at numerous conferences that focus on areas in neonatology, clinical chemistry, newborn screening, and mass spectrometry. Don is now tasked with spearheading the introduction of Capitainer's QDBS technology um, into uh, the North American market. Well, welcome, Don. I'd like to start off by thanking you for joining us today. We truly appreciate you taking the time of what may, must be a very, very busy schedule. Uh, by way of introduction uh, to our listening audience, perhaps you could give us a, a brief career synopsis and how you arrived at Capitainer. Okay, well, thank you for the inv invitation. I'm very pleased to be here and um, I'm glad to, glad to sort of tell you a little bit of the history because it's kind of fun, it's fascinating and I think the future. So um, how did I get started? Well, actually I got started with chemistry and I'll start in the early days just because that's where I got inspired. I, I was in the chemistry department at Boston College and I realized then that my, what I liked most about chemistry was an application. So I was looking for applications of the science. I didn't wanna get in the lab doing synthesis. So I, I studied that and so I ultimately went on for a graduate degree in forensic science at in George Washington in DC. Um, and there was, I was lived actually with a, a uh, forensic toxicologist, one of the first, one of the founders of the field, if you will. Um, and he inspired me. I mean, I lived, I boarded in his house and he inspired me every day <laughs> um, really to move, you know, just really think about it. It was, it was 24 hours a day thinking and education. It was really amazing. I think that set my career. Um, he said, go on for your PhD. So actually, while I was finishing up my master's, I started my PhD in the Department of Pharmacology. So I'm sort of in the pharma space at that time. Um, and I focused on metabolism. So that kind of brings in the fascinating aspects of metabolism into my career. And it's also where, to do the analysis, I learned mass spectrometry. So that's where it all began, mass spec and metabolism. Um, and of course, once I graduated, um, I had to find a career. I did a quick postdoc in Maryland, and then I ended up finding a job with Dave Millington at Duke as a, a research assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics. Um, and that was an interesting career um, or start of my career. That's really where it began. Um, and I was assigned a project in newborn screening. Um, they had a, the state of North Carolina was interesting in seeing whether or not they could detect a specific new disease called MCAD deficiency. MCAD deficiency is a disorder of fat metabolism. Um, and it's something that's very treatable. It's as simple as a teaspoon of sugar at night if you know you have it. But if you don't know you have it, 
you could you literally die and very quickly <laughs> from becoming hypoglycemic and it and you can't burn fat instead so you can go comatose and actually pass away and there was many many uh, kids that have died of unknown reasons at the time uh, from MCAD deficiency. So that was the challenge. And I was, uh, I said, would you be interested in that, Don? I says, absolutely. So first thing I did was not to do that. <laughs> it was actually <laughs> being the way I am. I said, well, if this is going to be newborn screening, how do they do their analysis? You know, this is mass spec. Mass spec has never been used in, in really in newborn screening. Mm -hmm. So I found out that they didn't use liquid blood. They use a dried blood spot. So say, oh, so we have to analyze from a dried blood spot. So that's where the really, the career in dried blood spots started, that I had to somehow develop a method to detect metabolites in a dried blood spot using mass spec. <laughs> so I said, well, let's do with the most popular one and the most well-known, which was phenylketonuria or PKU. And that metabolite was phenylalanine. And anybody who's done mass spec and been in metabolism, it's one of the more common amino acids. Everybody does that measurement. So that's where I started. And that's where things got interested because I wanted to optimize the DBS method first. And I had to compare it with their existing methods, which were fluorometric analysis. So it's sort of a non-specific fluorometry. And that's where mass spec got really interesting because I was looking for a standard um, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the cupboard, if you will, or in the, the, the um, bench, on the bench. And it was, there was basically a mixture of amino acids. And so I analyzed that. And what, I, what did I find was the whole profile, <laughs> not just the phenylalanine, right. but the whole range of amino acids. Right. So all of a sudden, I knew I could not only do phenylalanine from a dried blood spot, but the whole, the whole amino acid profile. And then it became easier later on to add the acyl carnitines. Um, because, if, you know, after I optimized the method for a dried blood spot, which by the way, was pretty simple. It was just a methanol extraction. It was that simple plus internal mm -hmm. standards, which are key. Mm -hmm. and, and so that was it. It was really, it was really simple. I mean, at least to me it was, and it generated a huge buzz. So next thing you know, Dave Millington, my colleague who is associate professor went off to metabolic meetings and was saying, look what we've done. You know, we didn't just add MCAT, we added PKU. Uh, and the, the beauty of that, to be honest with you, and what sold it was the idea that we could also do what they currently did in their screening, and then also add this new disease, MCAD, plus others. So, so that was sort of what really caught the attention of, of folks in the field. So anyway, so I did that, and then I tried to work on the next step was automation, because obviously, you know, newborn screening is population screening, so that's a lot of samples per day, especially mm -hmm. if it's every baby born in the state or a province or in a country or whatever. So, um, you know, I had, had to do that. And the technology wasn't quite there. Electrospray was just emerging as a practical technique, uh, which coming out of pharma, of course, which everything seems to come out of pharma, mm -hmm. <laughs> or at least the applications. Um, mm -hmm. So I did that for many years. And then we got the attention of uh, Dr. Ed Naylor in Pittsburgh, who actually had a supplemental screening. He would he would supplement, it would add to screening that wasn't done by the states, sort of fill in the gaps, if you will. And he said, oh, I could do this, you know, very quickly um, and, and replace some of the other techniques he was doing by fluorometry with mass spec. Um, and so we helped him set up. And so we not only expanded his program, we improved his program. And so he was really the first to do it. And so he went off and sold this to different hospitals. At that point in my career, I decided, well, you know, it's, I think that I wanted to make this my career devotion, that I was going to make this happen. 
Right. <laughs> and right. we still had to do the interpretation. That was an important part. What is it? What is it? You're talking about a profile with a lot of metabolites. So how do you handle all that data and information? So I think I championed that up at his lab. I joined him. I moved from Duke, um, which is what you're supposed to do anyways. <laughs> you sort of start out at Duke and then move on. So I did. And I worked with uh, the lab in Pittsburgh for many years, getting that start and making sure he was successful. And he was. Um, ultimately, um, he sold a lab to a company called Pediatrics, um, which, um, which again, they just took over. They were a bunch of neonatologists, so that's how we bring in the neonatology aspect. But they decided they were going to do newborn screening for a while. I managed to work with uh, Alan Spitzer, uh, who's a neonatologist. And one of the interesting aspects of all of this is that the biggest source of false results in newborn screening are preterm infants. And preterm infants are the, the pa patient, if you will, in a neonatology uh, um, uh, hospital um, uh, unit. So um, basically we looked at all the false positives into why, and it turns out it was nutrition, that the nutrition they were giving would raise certain levels in the blood would create false positives, so I, so, but how could you reduce them? That's the other beauty of mass spec with its accuracy is you could reduce false positives. Mm -hmm. um, so we did that. Um, and, I, and ultimately that lab got stalled uh, and I stayed on with, with um, uh, pediatrics focusing on this nutrition and neonatology, which I found fascinating. Um, the method of newborn screening was pretty much developed. But I kept doing that because the CDC invited me to be a guest researcher down there. Um, so I've been a guest researcher with them uh, for about 12 years now. Um, in fact, I'll go down there next week. Um, and so I've been doing you know, a lot of different research, pushing the boundaries, doing a lot of quality assurance, which they do, and mm -hmm. helping support the states. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and also at that point, at some point, I decided to, to join a, to do, look at the nutrition side. So I briefly joined a company that was champion uh, human milk. They actually process human milk, uh, donor milk for, for the NICU. And I was interested in, in looking at that aspect. You know, milk became something interesting, the metabolic profiles of milk, mm -hmm. worked on some dried milk spots and things like that. And then the opportunity at Capitainer came up. And it was too good to not to turn down. And it was one that we worked together to championship because it was the right place for me. It was putting me back where I always was, which was dried blood spot technology. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of improvements yet to be made. And we can talk about that later. Um, and so I've been there for six months, actually, this month, <laughs> next week. So, and it's been fun. It's been great. I love every minute I've been there so far. So, uh, and I expect it's going to get even more fun um, because I'm also be doing some applications, which is what I love to do. So fantastic. Fantastic. So Don, I was hoping that in a sea of microsampling device technology and a variety of approaches for acquiring a high quality uh, dried blood sample, could you describe for our audience what the Capitainer device is and perhaps what specific pain points its architecture strives to mitigate? Uh, and perhaps you could share some feedback uh, you've received from those using the device in terms of the ease of implementation and, and the quality of the analytical results. Okay. Um, well, let's make sure I answer all your questions. <laughs> so remind <laughs> me if I don't. All right. So, so question one, 
what is the device itself? Well, um, it, it helps to actually say what the, the dried blood spot from which most people base everything on, the conventional dried blood spot or the Guthrie card is because then you can understand where uh, the QDBS device capitainer improves things. Uh, so generally, uh, basically the, the, the filter paper that is used in newborn screening is a piece of, it's a cotton-based filter paper. Um, and you basically has a, a zone printed on it where you actually collect blood. The goal is to collect about 50 microliters to 75 microliters of blood from a heel stick in a newborn. And the drop will touch the paper and spot it. And you'll get four or five of those, maybe four to six of those spots for a typical application. Um, the problem is, is that what is the volume of blood? And if any analysis in, in, by mass spec or any chemistry for that matter requires, in order to determine a concentration, which is how much per mil per volume, you need to know volume. So with a dried blood spot, the volume was, was uncertain at best. They standardized with a known hematocrit of blood and a certain volume applied to a paper. And then they could say, okay, that makes a certain diameter. And then what does a punch? So what's the volume of blood in a 3 16th inch punch? Well, I could tell you it's 7.6 microliters. Well, where'd you get that number from? Well, it's based on a CLSI standard. So there's a standard that the FDA, they go through different FDA approval on the standard, but that's for a fixed hematocrit and a fixed volume of blood. The problem is, is when you go and collect blood from a newborn, they don't always, they don't collect it in a pipette. So there's an approximate volume of blood that's placed on the card. Not only that is you don't know the hematocrit and hematocrit is a big issue because hematocrit will basically is, will determine how big or small a spot is and how concentrated metabolites might be in there. So there's a huge variables. Mm -hmm. So there's 15% variation in uncertainty in dried blood spots under the ideal circumstances. Right. And of course, newborn screening isn't ideal, depending on how it's collected. And if I showed you spots are all over the, there's little dots and big dots and incomplete spots. And you try to punch the sample that seems to be appropriate. I mean, you use paper punches or you can do automation. Um, so, so what did Capitainer do? Well, Capitainer decided that one, um, we, need to we need to get at the volume issue. We need to figure out a way to improve volume. And how do you do that? Well, capillary, a capillary measurement. But in newborn screening, you don't want to collect blood in the capillary because when you try to apply it to the paper, you scratch the fibers and you cause all kinds of disruptions to the paper. So that's, that, it's a similar idea, but it wouldn't work. So what they did is they have these microfluidic channel devices that will precisely capture 10 microliters of blood and then deliver it to the paper. So there's basically the disc They'd have a pre-punched disc and really the size of the disc doesn't matter, but it does fit in a microtiter well. And it's large enough absorption that it'll take the full 10 microliters of blood. But since you're gonna analyze that whole 10 microliters, you've eliminated the uncertainty problem. So it comes down to that 10. So that's, that's, that's amazing innovation because the precision on that 10 is less than, is like one, the device itself is like half percent, 1%, something very, very low. When you add the assay itself, you might be up to two or three percent. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a huge improvement from the fifteen percent imprecision, if you will, on the the dried blood spots. So you've made it made a, excuse me made a good and you know made a big improvement. But they also were really innovative in other aspects because they were focused on home sampling. 
So this device uses these poly PVA membranes, polyvinyl alcohol, I believe, that actually is at the collection zone where you put the drop of blood, that's where you fill up the capillary. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one that's over where the filter paper is, where the capillary will drain onto the paper. Um, so the first membrane, you'll, you'll put your blood in the zone and it fills it up and it fills the capillary. Then that receptacle will drain. The membrane will dissolve and that'll drain. So you no longer have any blood that can fill the capillary further. So, mm -hmm. so it's, there's no way to add more blood to the capillary, it's full anyways. But then shortly after, like a second or two after, the membrane that's over the, the filter paper will dissolve. Mm -hmm. And then the capillary will slowly drain onto the filter paper. Right. Um, and it'll spot. And you'll see the blood actually, it's, it's sort of a, fl a florette, if you will. It starts in the center and, and moves out. Okay. So you can see it fill out. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's kind of cool. And what's nice about that is that two things. You can't overfill because of the time differences. You can go try to add more blood. But you can't because the, the, the hole where you collect it is, is, goes right down into the, the receptacle, if you will, and it mm -hmm. can't fill up the capillary. Right. You can't undersample either because if you don't fill up the capillary with 10 microliters, the blood won't make it to the membrane at the end to dissolve it. <laughs> so you can't, over, you can't undersample, if you will. So it's obvious to the consumer collection, and frankly, that still includes you know, like the nurse phlebotomist, whether or not it's successful. And I've used these myself and it's fascinating to watch. And, you know, and if you do have a failure and actually one card I did, I didn't get enough blood and it's filled up the capillary almost to the end, not quite, and it didn't spot. And I said, oh, why didn't it spot? Well, I didn't quite, just enough. <laughs> and when I went to add more blood, I couldn't because that membrane had already dissolved. So it sort of works in that way. So, you know, you do have some failures, but it's obvious when that happens. And that's important from the, the, the laboratory perspective. You want to know that your sample is very good. And that was a problem in newborn screening because we spent a lot of time, where are we going to punch the spot? You know, and there's a lot of effort that went into that and uncertainty. Right. That's eliminated with the capitainer. Okay. The, the, and the other aspects I would say, like filter paper, it's protected. There's many layers of protected. And I will add this, that the paper itself is off. It, you don't touch the paper that's being spotted, mm -hmm. unlike mm -hmm. newborn screening. And so the sources of contamination are reduced substantially. And it also dries. They don't sit out in the laboratory, like you have to leave it out in open air. You can mm -hmm. you put it in a pouch and you can dry it on the shipping. So those are the other two features that I, I think was just really, I mean, I was fascinated as to this is the design. And I knew that this was a good design. And it still keeps the traditional filter paper, which is, I think, where all the science is still based on now. You know, at least in, right now, the current, it's still that cotton-based filter paper. So, Right. Anyway. Lots of precedent in the literature for a variety of applications. Right. And I know there was other parts of that question, <laughs> so I'm not sure I answered all parts of it yet. Um, Feedback from those using the device in okay. terms of the ease of implementation and the, the sorts of analytical results. I, I guess one of the questions that, that some might have is what sort of hematocrit range does it support, right? Because as the hematocrit increases, the blood viscosity increases, and does that affect the transport through the microfluidic? Yes, I, I'm pretty sure that <clears throat> the lower hematocrits aren't an issue. So, so your range is up to about 55%, something like that. So the very okay. high hematocrits may result in a device that, that won't fill the capillary properly, it might clog. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, we don't say it, they might work. It might not, but yes. Yeah, so viscous solutions aren't going to quite, you know, work as mm-hmm. well. Um, but again, I, this, there's information on our website that does list the range of where the hematocrit might fail if it's very high. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other side, lower hematocrits are, 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 um, are fine. And that's always, that was always a bigger problem in newborn screening is the very dilute blood because you didn't get enough. You're always looking for something higher. So, right. you know, and so a higher, higher hematocrit, the, the device might fail at a certain point. But at least you won't get the spot and have a you know a wrong answer, so to speak. So, yes, there is an upper range limit, and I would say su- I would suggest you use look at our website to see exactly what those numbers are, mm-hmm. and and they may change with the devices that we use um, in the future. So, is the device amenable to different paper substrates? As I understand it, right now it's the Alstrom two two two. Are you looking at other substrate types? Yes, um, we're working on some new products, um, larger volume cards, the sort of slightly different devices that collect larger volumes. So in order to get collect larger volumes, you need a paper that absorbs more blood. So if you're going to keep the same disk size, which is important to us from an automation point of view, mm-hmm. you want to keep the same disk size sure. that goes in a microtiter plate. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to have thick, thicker paper. So yes, there's a different product, but if you look amongst the Alstrom, it's all kind of comes from the same manufacturing concept. Now, could there be other kinds of materials that go in there? Absolutely. I mean, there could be different materials in the future, but right now using the cotton, what's really changing is the type of paper. And I can say that some early data that I've seen is that the paper in the matrix does matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it actually, and it has nothing to do with the volume because the volume's already done. So understand that we're doing 20 microliters or 10 microliters or 50 microliters, whatever the volume is that you're ultimately looking at. Um, in this case, the 10 and the 50. Um, or you can, and you can also, just so you know, you can double up the spot. So you get the 20 from two tens or hundred from two fifties. Right. So I think that's important how you think about the devices. Um, but the, the, but the way that the filter paper is such that you could, you could do several things to that paper to, to change how it works. Um, you could treat it um, with, with vanadium, for example, and that would be used for polyethanol uh, and pethanalysis, which is for alcohol, chronic alcohol abuse screening. Mm-hmm. So, th- so that's a device specific for that. Um, you could, you could do other types of paper treatments for, perhaps you could put a DNA treated paper if it was a molecular application or, or some, some different types of, of things. Um, you could do internal standards, which is one of the things I'm interested mm, in. Yes. If that yes. would work, I don't know. It would be interesting to, to see. So there are many opportunities in creativity, you know, the different things you could do to treat that paper. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, perhaps uh, adding it, um, whatever feature that there is about um, the paper itself enhancing that ability. So the whole idea is to improve recovery. And as I was alluding to is that I've seen some data to show that the the way the the capillary spots the paper and the paper itself, both of those, it it seems to impact recovery of the paper. So how that blood is distributing on the paper is another important factor that I've seen based on some of the data that, that I'm working with a few colleagues now that actually they're doing it and I just happen to be privy to their work. But um, yes, yeah, so that really, that the material itself and how it's spotted. So another feature, it seems like the way the capillary spots 
is important. And in fact, some data is suggesting that that the capillary channels that, that are used in the capitated devices may deliver volume more accurately than, say, using a manual pipette. That was certainly so. our experience when we evaluated the device. We were getting CVs much better than we could do with a positive displacement pipette direct deposition onto the disc itself, which was incredible. We did not expect that result. Yeah, right. I mean, I know you mentioned that, <laughs> but I've seen other data, not just in your lab, but in another lab doing the same thing. In yeah. fact, the way you apply the blood, how fast you eject it, it can mm -hmm. be a factor. And certainly. if you notice the capillary, it's kind of, if you ever watch it, it's, it's a slow process. It's like using uh, bounty paper towels, picking up a spill. You know, it slowly <laughs> absorbs it, but it distributes nicely and it must. And we're doing some electron microscopies also to look at what's the paper itself. And there's some big differences in paper. So what does that mean? I mean, you know, where's the future going to go in terms of paper? Probably many different places. There'll probably be people that will come up with different kinds of membranes mm -hmm. or additives. Um, I see this as, you know, and it may be related on what your analysis is, but you don't fundamentally change the device's fundamental concept that's sort of patented is the idea of adding a precise capillary distribute volume in the card itself to the paper and having it timed so that you can, you know, prevent over and under sampling. So I think that's, that's, so any, you can come up with a many, many different types of devices. <laughs> in fact, that's a big problem because everybody has an idea of what they want to see. So, yes. you know, and, yes. and we just want, okay, just use this first and then we can make, figure out what's the best improvement. But I think the fact that you have a customizable substrate makes it much more amenable to a variety of unique applications that otherwise a end user might struggle with, particularly yes, with the PETH, which you had uh, mentioned previously. Yeah, you can imagine, if you think about the classic cards, let's say we had a PETH, let's say we treated filter paper with PETH membranes, the classic filter paper, where you would actually touch the heel to the paper. Then all of a sudden you have the idea of, you know, oh, you could contaminate the blood. There's a connection between the heel, the blood, and the paper. Mm. So you worry about toxicology, right? You just, it, what's sure. the safety behind it? Uh, infection, you know, I don't, it's not infectious, but you know what I'm saying. It's just yeah. anything could yeah. happen. Whereas these devices are on the other side of the capillary. So you mm -hmm. can't contaminate. So whatever you treat that paper is not going to, is there's no connection with the, the finger or the heel, wherever you're collecting the blood. So I think that's really another feature that's built into the device. And this, and all of these things, you know, you just discover as you're working with it. So that's what makes this a really fun company to work with. Geniuses, the engineers are really, really amazing when they came up with this over there. So. I, I brag about them all the time. So I like to, I like to see the turn red. So anyways. Let's, um, I, th I think we probably talked around the third question, which was uh, what, are this, what are some of the key applications that Capitainers supported thus far and sort of, you know, okay. what might we expect future and are there opportunities for automation if it's not already being done? Yeah. Um, so I think the applications, obviously, if you look at newborn screening, that's not an application we're currently targeting. So let's say what we're not targeting. We're not targeting newborn screening, mm -hmm. mainly because, I mean, they have a workflow of 200, 300 microliters. But we are targeting the periphery, if you will, monitoring, rare disease monitoring, perhaps right. repeat testing where you need the repeat analysis might need more precise measurements. 
So monitoring clearly, you need to have the accuracy and the precision in the monitoring certain diseases like PKU. So mm -hmm. I know that's one application that's definitely being looked at. Um, others are repeat testing because you wanna have a better analysis. So that's clearly one aspect. Um, a lot of the early work was COVID, of course, in <laughs> a genetic right. part, right? So if you, if you extend that out, infectious disease is another big application. Um, I think um, hemoglobin A1C is one. Okay. Uh, again, because it's, it, you have to look at those things where this home sampling would be ideal, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, uh, you know, thy thyroid, you know, T4, uh, TSH, that's something mm -hmm. I'll be working on myself. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting about that one is you have to do a mass spec, but then you also have to do uh, an ELISA or immunoassay. <laughs> okay. So yes. that'll be interesting yes. to see how we, we use that and how you combine the, the data. Mm -hmm. um, I also know there's work going on in the steroids, um, vitamin D, you know, those things that are done at home. Uh, iron now, iron, uh, you know, iron deficiency, so ferritin. So we, we, we're hopefully we're having a new plasma card come out soon. Okay. So for those assays where, you know, the hemoglobin is a pain in the neck, if you will, <laughs> protein overwhelms everything. Yes. And you want to yes. look at smaller, you know, less, you know, less interference from other proteins or other mm -hmm. compounds. You, you don't want to, you know, analyze all the iron in the blood, the red mm -hmm. cells themselves, but in the free floating iron, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also working on some heavy metals, other people doing heavy metals. Um, in my case, lead, which is a challenge because it's everywhere. So this, um, so I'm working on that. So um, let's see what else. I mean, there's a billion, this, let's put it this way. The best way to summarize it, anything that has been published now using a dry blood spot mm -hmm. can be done using on devices. So, so the ideal for those people using the conventional dried blood spots, it's easy to adapt these devices. And so even for newborn screening, I mean, we could take subsets and analyze with the devices. Now I'm pretty sure of it and do it better. So we'll sure. see, we'll sure. see where that goes. Um, but I think definitely in the rare disease monitoring in the home market um, where a patient could, could send in their samples um, not have to collect in. So, so again, as I see the market in the future, I think um, anytime where you're doing monitoring regularly, where patients have monitoring, uh, diabetes, uh, obviously hemoglobin A1C, things like that, I think that's where we're going. And, uh, you know, um, I mean, this, the list can be so long. And there's, I think on our website, we have a list of all the different things we're, we're looking at um, from wellness studies, mm -hmm. um, 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 birth, birth planning, you know, you know, sex hormones, those kinds of things that to, to the steroids, the glucocorticoids, you name it. And, and then neonatology. I mean, I have some ideas in that as well. And of course did some work. And I think this would be perfect for neonatology because you can get improved quantification of, you know, and the numbers mean more. You're not talking about changes, I guess, understanding that in newborn screening, the changes in concentration were enormous when you have a disease. Whereas you move off to diseases that are more fine, like monitoring or slight changes, mm -hmm. then you really de need the accuracy. Right. And Absolutely. if you're going to do it in a home collection, which if <laughs> it's not usually going to be more accurate, <laughs> generally using the standard better, the, the standard uh, paper, using our devices, at least you know that that will be as accurate than if collected in a clinic. And I think that's really the beauty is that we want to 
we want to approach what we call a diagnostic. I mean, we're not there yet probably, but we're approaching that. So we can have a debate of what's a diagnostic and what's a screening test. But you know what I'm saying? It really comes down to accuracy and mm -hmm. precision and precision mainly. So, um, so I think we're moving in that direction. Well, where have you spotted the main challenges or bottlenecks with incorporating microsampling, particularly for drug development programs? Is it mainly the clinical pharmacologists who are so accustomed to venipuncture and plasma analysis? Is it just a, a comfort level with, it, with accepting the exposure data from a dried blood? Or is it not understanding how the technology functions? Or is it just the the sheer logistics of, of getting it into the patient's hand and making sure that the patient is trained well enough to use the device. I'm just curious what your, what your observations yeah, are. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting because I'm going to an AACC meeting because it's a clinical chemistry meeting in a few weeks. <laughs> and, and I already know what, if you go to that meeting as a mass spectrometrist, you, you realize there's a few mass spec companies, but that's not the major workflow. The major workflow is the big auto analyzers. And the reason why they like plasma is because from plasma, they get plenty of it and they get it from plenty of blood. Right. And so their systems are designed to work with volume. So as I'm talking to some other laboratories, the issue always comes down to volume because they need a large volume to send to the different, I mean, they can do a hundred things, but there's a hundred different wells and hundred little different assays that they're running at right. any one time. Right. So, so that's an issue. So then the question becomes, you know, how do you get all that blood or plasma from, from a drop of blood? So it's a challenge. And some people are working on that. So, I mean, there's just an effort to do that. But if there's plenty of money to be done and the, these are patients that are in a hospital, why bother? Just go, you can get a tube of blood anytime. <laughs> sure, <laughs> right. sure. Yeah. Now, um, so, so what disrupts that is the idea of where, where do you need the microsampling? Definitely home collection. They're not mm -hmm. going to collect the 10 mils of blood or one mil of blood, even at home. You're going to get a drop or two. So that's definitely forcing it. And that's where COVID is changing the mindset. But it's really a stubbornness. It's plasma. So, you know, you, you know and I've, I've been fighting the plasma versus blood in metabolic screening forever because the blood spot was blood, not plasma. Right. And right. it was kind of new if you think about it. It's blood. It's just not plasma. And um, it, but so you change it with plasma spots. So we're not going to fight city hall. We can also provide a product for city hall that they want the plasma mm -hmm. spot. But the other thing is, is the volume of blood. So those doing, you know, how much blood can you get out of a card? So even in the conventional newborn screening, you, you get what 200 microliters. If you punched every spot out and, you know, cut the whole circles, you might get 200 microliters of blood. Whereas our cards in the future, you'll be able to get two spots for a hundred. So we're getting close to what's required. So I think labs have to take the time and effort to figure out how to reconstitute that blood into a volume that could be used in the auto analyzers or the auto analyzer people decide to make an effort to go into dried blood spots. Um, why that hasn't happened yet? I just don't think there's been enough time for it to sink in. COVID is sort of recent, right? I mean- Yeah, for sure. And, and so I think that's changing everything. Um, so everything that you said is, is the reason, you know, plasma, volume. And, and so that's, that's, that, that's the reasons. Also, I, I will add this, that the big reason, the one I encounter most, the problem with newborn screening is, as we've often said, it's just screening. 
Yes. We're just screening. We're not doing diagnostics. We're kind of like the, you know, you're not quite up the snuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You, you didn't go to the right schools, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so it's, it's just not good enough. And it always was because I've always said that we need to make it more accurate, need to make it more precise. And that's still one of my long-term goals. So you can read into that as you wish, but we do need to make it better. Um, we could, we did a lot with mass spec, reducing false positives and profiles, but we still need to make it more accurate so that we can, that cutoff point in detecting diseases is, is better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's, I think with a capitated device, at least for monitoring and screening, that we are going to kick it up a notch, as Emeril Lagasse would, likes to say, you know, um, and, and I really think that it's going to be something that will really be, you'll have to do a more accurate device in the future. Um, so that screening will actually not be, it's just screening. But I think that has a negative aspect. I, people, people think that way. So they kind of dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just our device, but all the different devices out there. Um, and also, I think there's a lot in the sports medicine, um, you know, Olympics kind of screening, drugs, mm-hmm. and uh so I think there's, there's so many other applications. Um, there's the vet space, animal model, animal studies, where, you, you know, you can't get a ton of blood out of a rat tail, <laughs> you know, so. Certainly. So, you know, so I think pharma is coming along. And um, so um, it'll be very, it's going to be fun. It's going to be really interesting to watch. But I think my, one of my goals, I always say, what's your real goal in life? It says to take, to make newborn screening, not just screening, take that whole phrase and make it disappear. <laughs> that actually it's, it's, it's an important step. Without that step, you don't even get to the diagnostic. Also a diagnostics made by a physician anyways. So regardless, <laughs> you know. Certainly. Yeah. So anyways, so that's so, how I see it. So sort of reflecting on the microsampling industry, as a whole, five years from now, what might you predict regarding advancements in technology and applications development? What are sort of the next level capabilities that we could see? I I think in terms of precise and exact volume deposition onto a substrate, I think think we're there um, with your device and, and other devices that are on the market. What are some of the other bottlenecks analytically that are that that are sort of preventing this from becoming more mainstream well i think in the devices and you asked this question earlier and i didn't really answer it about the automation and the robotics um one of the things that i realize as we're talking about is we actually had it's a very important we had to develop the robotic the automated handling of the punch Sure. So in our case, you needed a new device because we're not actually punching out a spot. We're, we're punching, but it's not a normal punch. It's a cross punch. It's, we're pushing out the spot right. into a well. Yeah. But we do have that. So, I mean, that's important. And so some other devices that are out there require more work. They have to have their own automation to, to whatever way their device is. So if they're not like in a, a simple card format, like the paper or our cards, where you can just stick it in a puncher and it'll just push it through that you might have to take it out or use manual methods. So depending on the other devices, that's a, that's a problem that that'll definitely be improved. So as I see it, automation, I think we're going to break the log jam of the big auto analyzers to finally start looking at dried blood spots. And I think that the, whoever the first group that really puts their money in there <laughs> will win. And it's not just Eliza. It's not just mass spec. It's both. Because and I, so I think you'll see cards that are designed for Liza, designed for mass spec, 
And then pretty soon this, the cards that are designed for the asset you're running. So they might be, a, I, I don't know, they might be a T4 card that we have in the future, in a longer <laughs> term future, depending on the market, what the demand is. Uh, there might be one for, uh, there'll probably be a card for lead where the paper is cleaned before it gets inserted into the device. I mean, it, it's, it's quite possible that, that what we're doing now will be adequate, but you can imagine that there are other elements, rare earth elements that are harder to find. So you want better, better matrices. Mm -hmm. I spoke to a few people that are coming up with designing other kinds of matrices that aren't necessarily cotton-based, but act in a similar way. The whole idea of hydrogen bonding and stabilizing the molecules, mm -hmm. um, because that's the other part of paper um, that people don't realize is that the, the paper itself is a cleanup step. Once you get the blood on there, you can either rinse it all out. <laughs> so therefore you take it as, you know, raw blood, or in the case of newborn screening, you do an organic acid, I mean, excuse me, organic uh, extract like methanol or acetonitrile. Mm -hmm. And you leave all the salts behind and leave all those things you don't want, proteins. Sure. So it's a cleanup sure. step. And that was one of the things Mass Spec was always fascinated in. Eliza, they'd look into the enzyme. So you know, they, but there may be better ways of recovering that. So I think there's going to be great improvement for the devices. Um, I'll, I also think there's something interesting in new matrices. So we do blood and we do plasma, which is a blood or serum. And we'll be doing urine, which is already done in filter paper. And we should have a device for that urine. But I also think that there's a lot of work in saliva. Mm -hmm. So, and I think what you're talking about, the, what, what about higher hematocrit or what about more viscous solutions? Um, I think that I see some development on handling those things. So for example, one of the things I used to do is tissue samples. So how could you possibly do tissue samples? <laughs> well, there's fluid in those tissues, but can you get some fluid out? Can you get extracts out? Can you do, uh, you know, there's a lot of work on the microbiome. And then you obviously from that microbiome, you talk about the gastro fluids or solids mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of which can be, you know, homogenized or, or liquefied a little bit and applied to the card. So as I see this, in fact, some of that work we'll probably be looking at, you know, can you do bile? We did bile and filter paper. So can you add bile? So that's sort of the semi forensic applications, mm -hmm. um, CSF, things like that. Um, tears, maybe. Tears. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I think tissues would be interesting. I mean, how would you do that? But I could imagine a, 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 almost a disc where you place the tissue and force liquid into it and then fills up a capillary. So I think I'll see this, let's put it this way. I believe that there'll be an interface device like, the, like some kind of filter, like, like a plasma filter, for example, that will be between the spot, that the final spot and where the collection is. So I think there'll be some creative designs in the cards and how they how they spot so that you can do more materials. Mm -hmm. The idea being is what are the materials? I think with the focus on consumer, which makes most sense, um, is to get those materials um, that they would be collecting and what's sort of being done, uh, you know, you know, nasal, even nasal secretions, you know, do you add a drop of water and then apply it to this, to the paper. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I see that as a long-term future or devices that will apply, you know, there's, there's certainly some breath devices that are out there now where you literally try to cough up spit and go through a filter, <laughs> which might be, you know, you get the breath aerosols, if you will. Sure, so, sure. so I think there's going to be a lot more work done on home collection devices where you're actually um, collecting onto a piece of paper, a disc, 
that can be sent in the mail because I think the safety of, of the paper is also something that we often forget. It's, it's, it's a hazard working with liquid blood. You can't send it in the mail. You have to refrigerate. It's expensive. Um, so I think there's other advantages of the paper. And once a sample's on paper, it tends to stabilize. Um, it tends to be more protected. Um, it doesn't degrade. It may not be exposed to light, especially the cards if they're protected. So there's mm -hmm. lots of, I just see that there's a lot of interesting aspects of the future as I see that um, coming. And I, I think, again, like I said, I think you're going to see a lot more um, materials added, whether from standards or some other way to improve quantification. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if we can get the internal standards in the paper and get oh, that to work, then that that's uh, something, something I always wanted to do. I wanted to do it 30 years ago, to, you know, when I first started. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that certainly eliminates the recovery bias, right? And that's yeah. sort of, now you've got the volume bias under control. What's one of the last biases to solve? And that is the recovery bias. Correct. Yeah. And so I think that's going to be a lot of evidence. But what, what I'm finding out now is our current device, it already improves that. So how can you take that another step? Because mm -hmm. that that is, at least from a laboratory, that's everything. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, after the volume. So I'm saying you solve one. It's like anything else in, in the world. You know, you solve one problem, you just create another. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or you, you create, you know, you move on to the next challenge. Yeah. So. It's all peak area ratio. It solves everything. Yes, area <laughs> under the curve. Yeah. So um, so how, how does mass spectrometry figure into this? I mean, we're, we're working with smaller and smaller volumes um, and, and are, oh, yeah, that do was... we need more sensitivity? Are, are, are we good enough with the 6,500 pluses, the 7,500s, or, or you know, do we need another tenfold? Or, or is what we have good enough? Ah, oh, well, that's, that's excellent, because that was the other part of the future, but it wasn't specific on dried blood spots. So what can the mass spec folks do, or what are they doing? So since I said I had a good conversation and I'm going to throw out some names, Tom Covey, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> who you know, yes, who yeah. I've worked with very clever, uh, uh, quite a bit. And, and again, he, you know, his whole idea is he's actually used the devices. And as I see it, what's happening now is he said to this, and I came up with this statement once and he wanted to use it. And I says, we're at the point in mass spec where there's no momos. So I call it nomomos, N-O-M-O. -O. He calls it N-O-M-O-R-E, but I say no-mo. <laughs> there isn't any more moles. There's no more sensitivity. You're at, they're maxed out. I mean, they're at the point where they've gotten every ion out of there. There's nothing left. So, so we're at the maximum amount of ions we can detect. So the emphasis in this is really what I'm seeing in mass is, is on the after the, you know, the, the sample prep or the ion separations. The ion source, right. you know, I mean, the ion source and the like ion mobility. Again, I think that's fascinating or the acoustic ionization or other kinds of ionization where you're trying to get the ions up and get throughput. The thing about mass spec is the, the throughput has to be faster. So newborn screening, it's one sample every two minutes. That's sort of been what I did. And it's pretty much around where it's still. But if you, you got to get to get the throughput to get costs down, you really need to get maybe a sample every 10 seconds. Sure. And sure. how do you do that with maintaining sensitivity? So you really need a lot of front end work. Um, so I think that's the future. Um, I, I mean, I always like Maldi because I always remember watching that thing just zip through the plate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not as good, but it's fast. Yes. <laughs> and so I think, I think there's going to be a lot of contributions from mass spec. 
Um, what's really needed from mass spec is proteins. I mean, really from a screening perspective, and we really need to do proteins better. So we, if, if you want to talk about whether, you know, ELISA is, is important because they're very sensitive. I think the sensitivity of amino acids is really low, even if it is, but it has a lot of interference. There's a lot of cross, cross reactivity, but the sensitivity is there and they've getting, they've gotten better at their antigens and antibodies. So, um, so the question is, is can we get mass spec to do proteins other than like hemoglobins, you know, more quantitative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I think there's, that's the other challenge. So if I was to do a, a thyroid screen and if I could get T4 and TSH by mass spec, that would be ideal. That would be perfect, right? Yeah. Because you want to do as much as you can out of that one spot. And whether that's a 10 microliter or a 50 microliter spot, that's, that's kind of, you know, where you want to come. Or if it's 10 microliters of plasma or... Um, you know, and I also think that the area of ratiometry is, is, is informatics is going to be key because that's mm -hmm. the, that's the other big resistance I get from clinical chemistry is that they want precise measurements of their metabolite, but what about relative to another metabolite? Isn't that more important? Isn't it your phenylalanine relative to tyrosine that really is important in the disease, not just the absolutes? Right. And the answer is yes. So, um, so I think Again, there's many things that, that I see coming in the future, but people don't like to change. It's more work. Um, I mean, the devices are not they're more expensive. So I think with time, the price will come down, but still, I mean, the, the more technology means more expensive, but that's the argument we did with mass spec, right? When we first, Dave and I, if, we, if, you, if you look at the ASMS uh, articles on us, <laughs> called it wildcat screeners because they made fun of us. They said, there's no way that mass spec will ever be used in newborn screening. And I remember that. Are. And here, here we, are. we are. Yeah. Every baby in the world is screened by mass spec. So, um, you know, in a dried blood spot. So I, so I think, you know, don't say no, but, but yeah, I think mass spec is going beyond now and finding solutions. There's a lot of automation out there. Um, the idea of profiles also important. Um, Faster, faster LC, faster scanning. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I mean, and there's other <laughs> innovative technologies to to, to re improve recovery. Uh, you've been doing some. Uh, yeah. um, I and again, I'm. I just think that's where the future is going. There's so much. So again, what's going to really drive it though is what the need is, and I think COVID has changed everything. So, if you haven't changed your thinking since COVID, then <laughs> you know, I think you need to rethink it. If, if certainly, you, if you certainly. Yeah. Well, that's certainly one of the challenges we're faced with in the CRO industry is when clients come and they want to implement microsampling into their drug development program, oftentimes they're confused about what device to use. You know, why should they choose one device over another? And, you know, that, that's a real challenge to, to explain the, the differences between them and the, you know, the relevant pros and cons. Um, right. So it's, it's, it's nice to see, uh, to be honest with the capitainer device, a simplistic tool that's very easy to get your head around that is immune, as you mentioned early on in the podcast, it's relatively immune to both under and over sampling. Right. And because and a lot of what we see when we have issues with a microsampling um, for, for drug development in a clinic is patients are not able to take a good sample themselves, despite 
enormous amounts of training. You know, they squeeze too hard to get that last blood as it's coagulating, as it's coagulating and they oversampled the device. Right. Um, you know, or they say, oh, you know, that's good enough. That looks like I've pretty much got it. Put it in the packet, ship it away. You get it in the lab and it's undersampled by 50%. So, you know, to have a device on the market that's immune to that, that, that aids in the elimination of, you know, and, and if you look at some of the other devices too, such as the Tasso, that, that's very interesting as well, right? I mean, that's an on-body device. You press a button, you take away the whole requirement to do a finger stick. That, that eliminates a tremendous potential source of error. Yeah, I think, I think the space is, you know, each of the devices have their pros and cons. So, and I think there's plenty of spaces for all of us <laughs> in this business. I think, yeah, I think there'll be, I think there's obviously, you'll have a certain choice. You have to decide which one's better for what you're trying to do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I really do think, I, like I said, in the future, even if you choose a capitated device, which one, <laughs> you know, is it a 10, is it a 50? So I think this, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see where this goes and how they make the decision. But I think from the pharma point of view is you have to decide what you're trying to do and, and what the issues are. And I, I mm -hmm. think, and I, I'll be at the uh, farm side meeting in October. So um, I have a, a plenary, I think, or, or keynote, that's keynote, excuse me. But, you know, I talk about the history, but I think that's a, that's a fascinating field. And again, being the pharmacologist, the un, un, unused pharmacologist in me, <laughs> my degree, who I haven't really done, but it'd be very interesting to see that flow. And I, I can tell you when I went to the CPSA meetings that most of the people, they were pharma, pharmacologists or, you know, in the farm business. And they, it was, a, we had arguments all night long of what's the best approach. Mm, mm. And, and everybody was solving the hematocrit issue. So I think, I think that was the first thing. Okay, we solved the hematocrit issue now what's your problem <laughs> yeah. a good quality sample yes that, that is you know training the patient for self-sampling is still a still a hurdle it's still a bottleneck yeah and and, and the quality the quality of sample that you know it's quality in the lab but also that the consumer knows whether it worked because that's a big question because mm -hmm. because consumers aren't like i don't want to do this they want to do it they're always invested the fact that they get the device so they want to make sure if anything, they tend to keep trying to add extra blood or they keep trying to find places to put it. You know, I, I can tell you because I've been did it, I've, I've using it myself. And, you know, one I, I undersampled once because I did that. <laughs> I said, oh, there's enough there. It wasn't a free flow and didn't work. It stopped. <laughs> and so, but you, I could see it failed. So, you know, so that's the key. It's, it's a good feedback for the consumer. And also like for monitoring, because in monitoring, you think of these patients or drug monitoring, they're going to be getting these devices routinely. So they're going to learn. So is it also a device that you improve on? And I know they've done some studies with Capitainer that the, the success rate, and I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say it was 85%, let's say. Well, when they did it again, it goes up to like 98%. <laughs> you know, yeah. it may, might've been, it might've been not 85. I think that was the lower. I think that I think was, was the like, COVID screening test that was conducted yeah, in Sweden. It, it, something like 98% of the samples were properly right. sampled. Yeah. That, that was some yeah. impressive statistics. And that's what actually those numbers is what put us onto the capitator and said, Hey, you know, we have to have a look at that because one of the major hurdles that we face is getting a good quality sample. Right. 
So I think, I think again, I don't know what the exact numbers were, but I think it was, maybe it was 95% and then it, it went was up, up to 98. Yeah. I know the final number was 98%. I do know that. But yeah. what I'm saying is that as we have a minimum number, which, you know, has to be successful to, to show that it works, um, it works properly, that the device has to work. So again, the idea though, in terms of success though, is at least you get one good blood spot. And so that's the consumer side. So yeah. I'm pretty sure it's up. And if they've done it once, it's 98%. So with that, anything that you can improve instructions or videos, there's a cultural difference between the US and, and, and Europe, it seems like. We like YouTube videos. <laughs> I like them because now I can fix my lawnmower. <laughs> I watch, the, watch these experts fix it. And I say, now I've seen it and I actually do it. Same thing with a flat. <laughs> you know, it's like, so, so yeah, I mean, we're visual learners and I think you know you you pick your pick your best way to learn but yeah i i do think that that's really important because i know in newborn screening you spend a lot of effort in trying to find the good spot and i think that we talked about false positive rates like we would we fixed it from 1.5 percent to a quarter of a percent but a repeat sample just because the sample was inadequate was like two three four five percent that's a lot of that's a lot of repeats and that's sure. a lot. And you have to get that patient back in, get another sample. Uh, so anyways, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's really important. So Don, as is customary, I need to end with our three question feature. And these include, what do you like to do outside of work? What motto do you live by? And finally, can you let the audience know a fun fact about yourself? Sure. Um, okay. So what do I do outside? Well, behind me, you can see some paintings. So I like, I like to paint, um, sort of simplistic paintings. I do a lot of folk art. I had a problem with my eye once. Um, and so I took a class in folk art painting. Ooh. That's kind of the painting you see, like the crafty paint, you go to these craft shows and that sort of painting. So I actually would cut out, I got some woodworking. I cut out the wood and then paint it. So I did a lot of that, but I also always interested in as a kid doing painting. So I, I like doing that. That's my relaxation. So I, I can say before I ever had a final exam, I didn't study the night before I actually painted something. <laughs> it was great. Um, I like gardening. Um, I do computer games, but only a specific kind, the, the kind of, they call them city builders or civilization where I think I'm running the world and I see how often I... <laughs> And how often I fail or lose. The nice thing about a computer, though, is you can say, oh, I screwed up and delete that and go back to the previous save. <laughs> In the real world, the leaders don't get to, you know, change their mistakes. But it is fascinating. It does help you understand that, you know, how complex it is. Um, and they do a pretty good job on these simulations. So I like doing that. It's kind of a fun thing. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Um, I, like, I like science. I mean, I like doing graphic arts. So one of the things I like to do is do my own slides and try to teach analogies. So it's kind of a hobby, but, it, but I like doing analogies. So over there, I have some M&Ms and I do an experiment where I use M&Ms it was, and, I, and, and I used isotope dilution. So the question is, is if I had a jar of M&Ms, how many cherry, how many red one, red M&Ms are in the jar? And you couldn't count all the M&Ms in the jar. You could only take a sample. So how would you estimate how many in the jar? And you can't do dimensions because you think of it of blood in a body. So, but you can add something. So I don't have any blueberries. So I'd add some blue color M&Ms to the jar. And I know I put 20 in 
And, um, you know, then I know how many I added. I mix it up and take a sample. So if I get five blue and five red, then I probably had 20 red. And actually, I did that experiment and I've yet to publish it. I, I have it already written up. I just have to, to, to submit the paper. But actually, I, I, it's as funny as it is, I've done this demonstration in meetings and it works really well. Um, and it's a great way to explain sort of, you know, mass spec and newborn screening. Because what I'll do is I'll add an extra, some, some group, if they hit three groups of people, I'll add one and I'll add an extra 20 yellow ones. And I said, who has the hyper yellow anemia or hyper lemonemia? <laughs> but I like, I, that's, I like to do that. I like education and analogies. So that's the other fun thing I do. Um, okay, so what was the other question? Uh, oh, motto. Okay, so my motto I like is everything should be made as simple as possible, but never simpler. And I think that relates to the analogy question I was just discussing. Um, where, where I think we really need to explain things better, as simple as possible. And in fact, generally, if someone could explain things in a simple fashion, it's probably the right answer. <laughs> because complex things aren't made that way. It's, once you understand it, it's not complex anymore. It's quite simple. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. kind of funny. It's kind of fun with metabolism, because you look at metabolism, it's very complex. But when you really look at the whole picture, if you put it in terms of a picture, it's quite simple. So, but I, I always like that. So that's, in life, I look for simple solutions because actually that's probably the right one. It's the one we often don't see. Um, so that, that I think. And then the other question is some fun facts. Um, okay. Well, here's some funny facts. I don't know if they're fun facts, but funny facts. I actually worked for Hasbro in my last year in college, one summer, <laughs> I worked in assembly line oh. and I put, I put together, I did Mr. Potato Heads. <laughs> and so I had to put three arm, you know, two, excuse me, three, three years or two years and, uh, you know, a nose and a mouth. And I would end up putting three years and, you know, occasionally as, as the line would kept moving down and I was getting behind, I would start throwing in the different items. And so they said, oh, you're not very good at that. So we'll move you to the light bright. So the weebles, <laughs> so weeble raceway. So I actually, we, we were a bunch of college kids. We worked the line and we were always trying to figure out a way to optimize our line by who was good at what we did. And I remember we made a ton of money on doing paint sets and, uh, and, or pencil sets and, I was the one who could recognize the, the cover that goes on the, the specific set. There was like four of them coming through. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, a lady that could actually wrap a rubber band around a pencils because in that job, other people like myself and some other people would bleed to death because of the sharp pencils, right. but she was very good. <laughs> she could put those around without, you know, getting cut from the pencils. So that was a, that was a fascinating. So I was sort of a, uh, an, an elf one summer making Mr. Potato Heads. And then the other fun part is that um, when I was in college, I was a friend of mine went to a Halloween party and I dressed up as Groucho Marx. Oh. And, and I've always been Groucho Marx at a Halloween party ever since. And it was a very memorable event because people paid attention to me. <laughs> I felt like I was always, you know, I blended in, nobody cared. But when I would dress up, because I really did, I looked like him. And the fact that ASMS, they have a picture of me face of mass spec that shows me in that uh, costume because it's always been something I cherish because it got me a lot of attention and it was kind of fun. 
Um, and so therefore, after I graduated, I realized if I wanted to get attention again, I'm going to have to do something important. <laughs> Can't dress up like Roger Marx all day. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was always, it was fun. So I always did that as uh, I like, I like poking fun at myself because that's always the safest way to make, you know, for humor anyways, self-depreciating. Well, thank you so much, Don, for being with us here today and sharing your most valuable insights into microsampling, past, present, and future. Uh, it's very much appreciated. And to our audience, uh, many thanks for listening and taking the time to be with us here today to kick off our microsampling moments. Uh, be sure to check out our podcast webinars and videos on the Alta Scientist webinar and podcast channel. We'll see you all again soon. Until then, continue thinking big with small samples. <laughs>